We are one-eighth of our way through the book of Genesis, and as all of you know, eight is the number of new beginnings, and what a perfect number to consider when you come to the ninth chapter of uh, Genesis. So if you turn in your Bibles, if you brought them, turn to Genesis chapter 9, we'll begin reading in verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from every man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds and I see it, and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth, God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. In 1962, William Beebe died at age 84. He was an explorer, a naturalist. He was a marine biologist. And even though he was a young man in his 20s, President Teddy Roosevelt admired no one more than William Beebe. He used to invite Bibi to come to the White House and spend a number of days. And they had a ritual that the president instituted, and he never deviated from it, although he was terrible at it. He'd always say to Bibi after dinner, let's go outside, let's look into the sky and see who is first to discover a new star or a galaxy. Every time they did it, Bibi won. And yet Roosevelt wanted to do it. 
So one night they're out in the rose garden and they're looking out at the sky and Bibi is waiting. He waits for two or three minutes and Roosevelt hasn't come up with anything. And so he says, Mr. President, look over there. Do you see that galaxy? That's Andromeda. That is as big as the Milky Way. It's 750,000 light years from Earth. That one galaxy has over 100 billion suns, everyone bigger than our sun. The president stared at it for two or three minutes, and then he turned to Bibi and said, let's call it a night. After all, I think we're both small enough to do that. When you come to Genesis chapter 9, that's exactly your feeling. I mean, think of it. In Genesis chapter 9, God has already created the heavens and the earth, and then he's destroyed the earth. And here in Genesis chapter 9, he recreates the earth. Listen to how the Bible puts it. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the month, all of the fountains of the deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened. And instantly you discover that this is the first time in all of history that it rained. This week I read about a guy who was traveling in Arkansas and he came to an old gas station, one where they come out to pump the gas, and he saw an old guy sitting in a in a kind of a lounge chair with a rope in his hand. And he said to the old man, what's that rope for? He said, that's my weather gauge. He said, you can't tell the weather from a string of rope. He said, oh yeah, I can. He said, when it starts swaying back and forth, I know it's blowing. And when it gets wet, I, I know it's raining. Now there's some that come to this text and they say, you know, that flood that God sent on the earth wasn't a massive flood. It was only regional. It didn't cover the whole earth. It only covered a region. And then there are those who respond to that by saying, you're all wet. Actually, all flesh died on earth. That's what the Bible says. And think of what happens between the old system and the new. The Bible says before the flood, there were no problems with men and animals. It was kind of a Rodney King world where they all just got along. And it had to be that way because God had said to Noah, I want you to gather two of every animal, and, and he was able to do it. Now think, if it wasn't true that they lived in harmony, the animals and man, that would never have happened. But now in verse 2 we read, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, all the fish of the sea. Now if that were true before the flood, as I mentioned, the ark would probably not have been sufficiently populated. Not only that, God changes man's diet. He said, before the flood, you, your diet consisted of fruit and vegetables, but now you can eat meat. Before the flood, God alone was the one who avenged the murder of another human being. 
But in verse 6, we read, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. In other words, here God institutes human government and authority. That men can judge other men for the slaying of human flesh and take their life. But that's not all the change. In fact, that's not the, even the greatest of changes. There's a change much greater than all of those changes that occurs in this chapter. And you see it in verse 13 and 16. The Lord says, I've set my bow, my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When the rainbow is in the clouds and I see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is in the earth. The greatest change after the flood was the rainbow. Charles Schultz was one time sketching a cartoon of Linus and, and Lucy. And they're standing at a window and they're looking outside and it's raining like cats and dogs. And Lucy turns to Linus and says, boy, look at that rain. I sure hope it doesn't flood the whole world. And Linus replies, it never will do that. In Genesis chapter 9, God promised Noah that it would never happen again. And the sign that that's true is the rainbow. And instantly, Lucy gets a big smile on her face and said, boy, you've taken a load off my mind. Linus said, sound theology will do that. Linus is right. But the theology of the rainbow is far greater than simply the stopping of rain. There's a greater promise here that's wrapped up in the rainbow. In fact, there are four elements to this promise. Let's dig in and see them. First of all, notice the cost of the rainbow. Look at verses uh, 14 and 15. God says, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Now notice, if you will, the obvious. Without the flood, there would be no rainbow. Without death, there would be no promise of life. 35 years ago, I got a call in my office. A woman was on the other line, and she asked me a question I couldn't answer. Now, that isn't unusual. Women are asking me questions all the time I can't answer. But she asked me this question. She said, Doug, do you know why they're not praying for Carol anymore on the radio? Now, in the Laurel Highlands, there was a small Christian radio station. It probably was about three watts. And it had twice a day prayer time where people could call the radio station and request prayer for someone, and twice a day for 20 minutes they would pray this long list of prayer requests. I thought it was horrible radio, but they kept doing it. And so this woman is asking me, why aren't they praying for Carol anymore? I said, I have not a clue, but I'm going to see her later in the day, and I'll ask her. So I made my way about 20 miles from my office to Carol. I knocked on the door in the kitchen and I heard her a faint voice say, come in. 
She knew I was coming, and so I came in and walked through the kitchen to the dining room, and there she was in her hospital bed. She was exactly the same age as me. She had two little girls, just like Barb and me. Her husband was a minister, just like me. And yet, three months earlier, she had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and it was ravaging her body. She couldn't get out of bed. So as I sat there and I talked to Carol, I said, hey, I got a call just a while ago from somebody asking why they're not praying for you on the radio. Do you know why? She said, yeah, I asked them to stop. I said, you mean you called the radio station and told them to stop praying for you? She said, that's right. I said, but why would you do that, Carol? She, she said, because they weren't praying the proper way. I said, what do you mean? They're praying that you get better. She said, that's the point. I don't want to get better. You might not understand this, but ever since my diagnosis, as my body has gotten weaker, my faith has gotten stronger. And this may seem selfish to you, but the Lord has guaranteed me that he will guard my girls and my husband. I've never known a closeness to Jesus like this. And if this is dying, I can't wait. Now that was 35 years ago. She was 30 years old, just like me. When she said that, I simply shut up. Because I didn't have a clue the full meaning of those words. And you know what? 35 years later, I can't say that I completely apprehend them now. Because I haven't walked in her shoes yet. But you know what I do know? The cost of the rainbow is a flood. Without death, there'd be no promise of life. You see, what Carol understood in that hospital bed in her dining room that day was that she wasn't going from the land of the living to the land of the dying. She was going from the land of the dying to the land of the living, and she couldn't wait to get there. And the rainbow proves it. Second, notice not only the cost of the rainbow, notice the claim of the rainbow. Look at 16a. When the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember. What will God remember? He'll remember two things. He'll remember his judgment, and he'll remember his mercy. He will remember that he swept men away because of the complexity of their wickedness and sin. But he'll also remember that he saved others out of the flood. Do you see this? There are those who have a problem that God would send a flood to cover the earth. It's not fair, they say, that God would sweep away men in a flood. Paul disagrees in Romans 9. He says, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Does the potter not have the rights over the clay. You see, if there is any 
sign of God's sovereignty. It's the rainbow. You know what the psalmist says? God is in his heavens and he does as he pleases. You know what he pleases to do? He pleases to send a rainbow and every time he looks at it, he will remember that he will have judgment upon those he will have judgment upon and he will have mercy on those he will have mercy. And the rainbow proves it. Third, notice not only the cost and the claim of the rainbow, notice the condition of the rainbow. Verse 16 in its entirety, when the rainbow is in the clouds and I see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures. Now think about all that's symbolized in the rainbow. This is a covenant that has no conditions. God doesn't obligate any man, Noah or anyone else, to do anything in order to bring veracity to this everlasting covenant. There's no conditions. There are no statutes of limitation. He says every generation. Do you know what this means? There is nothing we can do to establish this covenant, and there's nothing we can do to invalidate it. It requires absolutely no ratification from us. It's all God's doing. In the 1950s, Fulton Sheen was on television. And if you've got a few years on you, you may have seen him, maybe not in the 50s, but you've seen him on some of those late night, <clears throat> low impact <laughs> TV stations. He's a Catholic priest, and he was watched by 30 million people every week, Catholics and Protestants alike. And the reason they tuned in was because he was a great communicator. He told wonderful stories. He made interesting points. Before Norman Vincent Peale or before Robert Schuller or Tony Robbins or Joel Osteen, there was a Fulton Sheen. One time he was asked what he thought of his new television contract, and he said something amazing. He said... The big print giveth, and the fine print taketh away. You know the great thing about the Scriptures? All there is is big print. And the big print in Genesis chapter 9 is there is no fine print. There's no condition. There's no bargain. There's no statute of limitation. There's no way for Noah to screw it up. And God puts in the sky for everyone to see his eternal covenant. And it's symbolized by a rainbow because he is responsible alone for keeping it. And then fourth and finally, notice the coverage of the rainbow. Verse 17. God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now notice something else about this covenant. There's only one sign of it. God says there's only one symbol, one sign that needs to be gazed upon to remember that I am God and I've made this promise. God doesn't write it on a rock somewhere. He doesn't write it in the sand somewhere. He doesn't write it on a wall somewhere. He writes it in the heavens. He lifts it up and says, this is my contract with you. Now, does that remind you of anything else, any other symbol 
in the Bible? Can you think of another sign in the Bible that has the same cause? Without death, there's no life. Has the same claim. Has the same condition. Has the same coverage. There's only one. It's in the New Testament. And it's the cross of Jesus Christ. I mean, think of this. 5,000 years after the flood, God the Father will lift up His Son and He will say to everyone, this is all my doing. You see, at the cross, God poured all of His wrath on the wickedness of man. He's judging man, but this time, He doesn't take it out on the guilty. He takes it out on the innocent. This time, God pours out everything we deserve upon Himself. On that day when the flood of God's wrath is poured out, it's the opposite of what happened in Noah's day. In Noah's day, everyone who was guilty died, except for a few. At the cross, everyone who should have died didn't, and the one that should never have died did. Do you see this? Now, there are those who read the story of the flood and they wish to impugn God for saving only one man and his family, but that's backwards. If you're going to impugn God for the flood, then impugn Him for saving a guy who not only a few hours after he gets out of the ark gets drunk and lays naked with his son. You see, the mystery of the flood is not in the judgment. The mystery of the flood is in the grace. And nowhere is that truer than at the cross. You know, as a kid, I was in Sunday school, and and I I listened to the story about the ark and Noah, and I I began to ask my teacher questions. And she told me the dimensions of the ark, and she kind of explained to me how he could get all his animals in there. She she told me that I answered right when I said it was is made out of gopher wood, whatever that is. I heard about all the animals. I heard about the time that they were in the ark, about the raven and the dove. But there was one thing in that story I couldn't figure out. Why did God tell Noah to pitch it on the inside and the out? Why did he say tar that sucker on the outside and the inside? And so I asked my teacher, why tar it inside and outside? She said, because it was going to be on the water a long time, and God didn't want leaks. I said, yeah, but tar stinks, and it's gooey. And she didn't answer me, but I bet you she was thinking, shut up, kid. I mean, I always wondered about that until I learned a little Hebrew. You know the Hebrew word for tar or pitch? It's kafar. And when you get to Leviticus 17, you see that word is used. When God says to Moses, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. For I have given it to you upon the altar as pitch for your souls. But that's not the way kafar is translated in in Leviticus 17. Here's how it reads. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, 
For I have given it to you upon the altar as an atonement for your souls. You hear what God's saying? He's saying to Moses, I'm going to cover you. I'm going to seal you with my pitch, which is the blood of my only begotten Son, and He, His blood, will carry you through every storm. And if you're a Christian, He's done exactly the same thing for you. He's pitched your soul inside and outside with the blood of His Son. The story of Noah and the ark and the flood isn't about, isn't a tutorial on ship design or zoology or divine judgment. It's the story of Noah that shows us there's only one way that God will save us from the coming flood of his wrath. And that's to be pitched on the inside and the outside by the blood of his son. No wonder Carol, at age 30, couldn't wait to see Jesus. She knew the promise. The more her body wasted away, the greater her confidence became in the promise and the promisor. The ark of her soul had been pitched on the inside and the outside by the life of Jesus. Not because she was good, but because Jesus is perfect. And like Noah, she trusted him. May you and I trust Him too. Think about that. Amen.